September 11th will forever be a day that stands as one of the darkest days in America's history. For some of us, uh, I would say many, but I remember uh, about the age group of our crew tonight, but for many of us or some of us, we might be able to remember uh, what we were doing or where we were uh, when we first received the news that American Airlines flight number 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center or saw the second plane fly into the South Tower. I was a 21-year-old student pastor working a full-time job at the phone company in my hometown and remember very vividly that morning just after arriving at work, my boss coming through and kind of making known to us of these various news reports that a small plane had crashed into a building, the World Trade Center maybe, in New York City. All the details of that moment were very fuzzy, um, but everyone thought it to be a fluke at that point. Uh, well, wanting to find out what was going on, we all turned to the internet. Uh, at that point in time, I believe it was uh, msnbc.com. Uh, it was one of the only internet news outlets that provided a live stream of the news and what was happening, and so we turned there to find out uh, what had been going on. It was only within a few moments that we witnessed via live stream United Airlines flight number 175 crash into the South Tower. I remember being flabbergasted and confused. Working in a call center at that time, it, it almost slipped past us that the calls weren't really coming in. It was as if everyone that would have been calling had their attention fixed on the events that were unfolding, unfolding in New York City on that fateful morning. As if that were not enough, we watched in horror as the towers of the World Trade Center began to collapse. First, the South Tower at 9.59 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Then the North Tower just 29 minutes later at 10.28 a.m. I had not been at work for a full hour before the first tower began to collapse. I remember being grieved in my spirit as I watched live through the internet these buildings collapsing with thousands of people slipping into eternity just like that, tragically. And as the news continued to roll in, we, we received reports of American Airlines flight number 77 being crashed into the Pentagon. And finally, United Airlines flight 93 crashed into a field in Pennsylvania as brave and heroic passengers attempted to subdue the hijackers and thwart the further plans of destruction and devastation. The days, the weeks, the months, and even the years that have passed since then have been challenging as people have continued to question, to debate, and doubt the goodness of God in the face of such horrific and terrible, tragic evil. And it happens that way in our own lives. Whether we're experiencing a global or a national tragedy or we're experiencing or living under the weight of our own experience as we experience trials in our own lives, Doubt and belief cause us to question the power and the goodness and the ability of God to overcome darkness. And it's in these moments, it's in moments like these, when faith doesn't come easily. And as we turn our attention to our text tonight in Mark chapter 9, 
it brings us to a moment like this. When a man is faced with a seemingly insurmountable circumstance that causes his heart to be filled with doubt and despair. Let's look at it. The first thing we see as we begin to uncover truth from this passage is that faith is often disrupted when the voices of the many drown out the voice of the master. It says in the text that when they, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, not the crowd, theologians believe not the disciples, but the scribes, what are you arguing about with them? Jesus steps on the scene with his, as I like to refer to him, dynamic trio, Peter, James, and John. And as they come back from the mountaintop experience of Jesus being transfigured, these three disciples are reveling in the revealed glory of Jesus, but, but they've been commanded not to tell anybody about it. But man, they are they're riding on cloud nine, man. They have experienced something that no one since then has experienced, but we will eagerly continue to wait to see Jesus' glorious appearing as he cracks the sky and returns to make all things right. But as they come back off the mountain and step back into reality, we'll say, they go from experiencing the revealed glory of Jesus to coming face to face with the forces of the devil, with the works of the devil. He's on display. He's active. They find their fellow disciples stumped and being argued with by a group of scribes and a crowd of people gathered around to see the show. It's chaos, and Jesus steps right in the middle of it to make sense of it all, only as Jesus can. How many times have we found ourselves in a situation like this? Not in that we're trying to cast out a demonic spirit and we can't, but where we're faced with a difficult situation or circumstances and the voices of the many, some trying to be helpful, are hindering us from focusing on or hearing what Jesus has already said or promised to us. The disciples who have been with Jesus for so long now, when faced with a crowd of debaters and doubters, they, they're, they're overwhelmed so much to the point that their confidence in Jesus and what he has called them to do is shaken. It's in moments like these that, that we have to press into the truth. We have to press into the truth of who Jesus is, press into the truth of who he's called us to be, and press into the truth of what he's called us to do. The disciples had not long before now, as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples had not long before just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah of God. And Jesus affirmed that they didn't just... They didn't figure that one out on their own. They weren't smart enough for that. But that his father in heaven had revealed it to him. Well, here in the text, the presence of the scribes suggests that they were, that they were there to question the very authority of Jesus and ultimately try to find evidence to discredit the ministry of Jesus. So the fact that he wasn't present when this, when this encounter began to unfold, man, it, it was a prime opportunity for them to step in and begin to engage and interact with his disciples in a way that they knew they wouldn't be able to engage and interact with Jesus. They were taking advantage of this moment. And there may be people in our lives that take advantage of moments like these. They, they might question your faith in Jesus. 
And I question if he really is the son of God, if he really is the only way to God, if he really died for the sins of the world, or if he really did rise from the grave. But what we have to remember and the truth that we have to press into is that you and I, we didn't come to realize Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is the Son of God on our own. We didn't deduce that, but just as with the disciples, the Father who is in heaven by his grace revealed that to us. As we're confronted with people that continue to question us, to question our faith, to question the validity of the claims that the Bible makes, it becomes an opportunity for us to, to pray for and to proclaim to them that God in his grace might reveal the truth of who Jesus is and that, he might, that they might come to know him as Lord and as God for themselves. You see, when we give ear to the debaters and the doubters in our lives and in the world that is, our faith gets disrupted. We begin to question if Jesus really is who he says he is. Have I chosen the right way? Am I truly forgiven of my sins? Is a life of holiness really worth pursuing? Is repentance and faith really necessary for salvation? Is the gospel really worth giving my life for? And the debate and the doubt is not only from those who are without, but Jeremiah 17, 9 clues us into the reality that the heart is deceitful above all things, is desperately sick. Who can understand it, it says. So when we're not firmly grounded in the truth of the scriptures, our own hearts can lead us to doubt. Which is why the Apostle Paul admonishes us in Colossians chapter 3 to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. That we're to turn our attention to heaven where Christ is seated and not be overly concerned with the things on this earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ. Romans 12, we're warned to not be conformed to this world and encouraged to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how do we do that? But with the Holy Scriptures. And he goes on to say that if we do that, we'll be able to discern, to know, to prove what God's will is and know that it's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3, I, I love this verse. Paul tells us that though we walk or live according to the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument and every lofty opinion that raises or exalts itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So when the doubt from within begins to consume our hearts, we fight back with the word of God. We fight back with prayer and we fight back in community. Our faith gets disrupted when the voices of the many catch more of our attention than the voice of the master, Jesus. But sometimes those voices are only ancillary to the doubts already at work in our hearts because we've not been intentional, we've not been careful to steep ourselves in the truth of Scripture and live in light of those realities. So when this happens, when, when our faith gets disrupted, we realize, secondly, that the intensity of our adversity causes us to doubt our ability to overcome. Check it out. And the text says, continues to say, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he's a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. The verses that preceded that, Jesus asked a question, what are they arguing about? And interestingly, the the person with the most at stake in the matter being argued about was the one who spoke up when Jesus asked that question. You see, the basic principle of discipleship was understood that the messenger of a man is as the man himself. So when the man brings his son to Jesus' disciples, even though Jesus isn't present, he doesn't lack confidence that they're not going to be able to do this because they're his disciples. They're his followers. But when they seemed to have met a formidable foe in this demonic spirit, he began to doubt if his son could really be healed. Some would say by the description of what the text uh, says the boy experienced that he most likely uh, was having uh, an epileptic-like seizure. But the text continues to describe that the spirit rendered him mute so he couldn't talk. So he was silent and having this extreme seizure. The father says later on in the verses that follow that it would often throw him into the fire and and in water to destroy him. And this this is serious and intense stuff, right? It gives light to what Jesus says in John 10, 10, that the thief comes only but to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan hates the image of God, whether it's in a grown person or in a child. And he hates this this image so much that even a little boy is not beyond his attempt to distort and destroy that image. And the intensity is only intensified when the very ones who should have been able to deliver this boy from this spirit can't. I'm sure in this moment before Jesus shows up, and maybe even as he's, as he's telling Jesus what's going on, he's wondering in his mind, is there, is there anyone who can help us? Disciples were, thro- were totally thrown off step. They, they, they don't know what to do in these moments. They, they, they had been given authority and sent out by Jesus before to cast out demonic spirits, and they had done it. They had been here and done that before, but aren't able to do it now. Probably because they approached the situation most likely placing more confidence in their past experience than in the one who had given them the ability to cast out demons before. They were trusting more in themselves than they were in Jesus. I'm sure we've maybe all had an experience like that before in our lives, right? We've experienced the goodness and the grace of God and being used and empowered by the Spirit of God to do something great for His name. Maybe you've been praying for a friend for a long time and have the chance to share the gospel with them. And maybe all over your mind, you're thinking, man, this feels awkward. This feels weird. They're not going to believe a word I say. But you experience this person listening and receiving your words and actually repenting and believing. Or you've been praying for God to provide for a need for a friend or for a loved one or maybe even for yourself. Praying for healing for someone. And God supernaturally intervenes and uses your prayers to, to respond to the situation. Or maybe God just used you to give a, a timely word of knowledge to someone who needs counsel. Maybe you didn't know the, all the facts of the situation, but as, as God brought you into that person's path, he just used you miraculously and supernaturally to speak the word that they needed in that moment. Feels good, right? Feels good to be used by Jesus. 
But somewhere in our deceitful hearts, we get puffed up over that. We begin to think that perhaps there was something in me that, that, that made me worthy of being used. And the next time the opportunity presents itself, the next time God wants to use us, we step up with more confidence in ourselves than confidence in the one who, by his grace, used us so profoundly before, and we fall flat on our face. And we're stunned. We're, we're caught off. We don't know what to do. And Satan, the enemy, is right there to speak doubt into your heart. You're not strong enough to handle this. You're not able to do this. You have no business trying to do these things, trying to pray, trying to share the gospel. And he's right. But Jesus is always strong enough. Jesus is always able. When we misplace our confidence, we'll fall flat every time. And I think this is exactly what was happening in the disciples' lives in this moment. This is why Jesus makes this, this heart-wrenching, this heartbreaking cry, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You see, the default disposition of the human heart is unbelief. In his late-night conversation with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, it's recorded in John chapter 3, Jesus explains why he came. It says very familiarly, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But not too many know the continuation of this passage. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him in the name of the only Son of God is saved, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. Jesus came to rescue us from the ultimate fate of our unbelief. So when he finds unbelief in the hearts of his disciples, these men who have been with him so long, he cries out, faithless generation, why are you not much different than all the others, all the others who seek a sign but still won't believe even if they get the sign? But Jesus in his love and grace has come to rescue us from our unbelief. It's in the dark shadows of unbelief that the enemy finds space to begin to wreak havoc in our lives. The more intense our adversity, the larger the shadow it casts on our situation, and that shadow begins to make room for the enemy to work, speaking lies to us of Jesus' inability to deliver, to rescue, and of our inability to overcome in Jesus. This is why, again, we press into the truth, daily reminding ourselves of how mighty to save and strong to deliver our God is. Our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in our ability to do anything, but our faith is in the one who came, who lived, who died, and who rose again victorious over the grave. But as we experience this intense adversity over time, it will cause us to question the possibility of deliverance. Time will cause us to question the possibility of deliverance. Text goes on to say, and they brought the boy to him, to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, 
How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's been often, and it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You see, when confronted with the person of Jesus, the demonic spirit violently lashed out. Now, we've seen encounters like this before in Mark's gospel as we, as we backtrack to ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 24, chapter 5, verse 7. But, but those encounters were not like this one. Before, these, these demonic spirits would speak to Jesus. They would address Jesus because, as John 1 says, he is the light that has come into the world and he shines in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended him. It cannot overcome him. So as these demonic spirits have been doing their, their thing in the darkness, when Jesus steps onto the scene, when Jesus confronts them. He shines light on them, and they, they, they're afraid. Son of man, what, what would you have to do with me? Or don't destroy us, as it, as it says in chapter 5 when he's dealing with the demoniac. But in this case, the spirit doesn't speak to Jesus, probably because it was a spirit that causes muteness. It instead causes the boy to seize. And seeing this, Jesus in his compassion asks the father how long Has this been happening to him? I think this speaks to the tenderness of Jesus, that he's not interested in being the solution to our problems, but he wants us to know that he is intimately interested in us, period. He's not coming on the scene to solve all the world's problems, but he is being the one who says, I love you enough to step into the muck and the mire and the mess and to rescue you out of it. Jesus doesn't just want to be your problem solver. He wants to be the one who is, as the scripture says, the lover of your soul. Now, the father, as desperate as he is, begins to explain that his son has been possessed from his childhood. The time and the extent to which he's been assaulted by the demon, often casting him into fire and into water, is indicative of the unusual strength of this kind of of demon, as Jesus refers to it later on in the passage. But in contrast, Jesus shows that his power is unmatched in the face of this demon as he, as he deals with it. The man in desperation and filled with doubt because of how long this situation has been happening, and I would think also coupled with the fact that Jesus' disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the boy, he asked Jesus to do whatever he can. Basically, Jesus, if you can do anything, do whatever you can. Have compassion on us. Have mercy on us. Help us if you can do anything. This is true in our lives too, right? Whether it be turmoil in our family, a long illness we've been dealing with, financial trouble, time has a way of weighing us down. We get to a place where we're exhausted and just ready to give up, and we just come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I, I'm done. What, whatever you can do, if you can do anything, because at this point, I, I'm not sure anything can be done. If you can do anything, please help me. Time will cause us to question the possibility of deliverance. But Jesus in his grace and in his mercy, 
and his compassion and his love for his people, he displays strength in response to honest faith. Jesus displays strength in response to honest faith. The passage goes on to say, and Jesus said to this man, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, because Jesus is not about a show. We see this over and over in Mark's gospel, that when he's going to deal with someone's situation, he doesn't do it publicly. Oftentimes, he pulls them to the side. He deals with them privately. So as the crowd is beginning to run and to gather, Jesus begins to deal with this situation immediately. And he saw the crowd came running together, and he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to us, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. He seemed to have been dead, and that's what the people thought. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. In his love and his compassion and in his patience, Jesus responds to our honest desperation. That's good news tonight. Jesus lovingly responds to our honest desperation. He first addresses the man's overwhelming doubt. If you can. You see, these these words are an indictment against the ability of God. This man came to Jesus because he believed that Jesus and or his disciples would be the only people who can help him. And in the face of his disciples not being able to deliver his son from this demon, he's questioning Jesus' very ability. So he says, Jesus, if you can. Jesus addresses this right up front. If you can, Jesus wants to to help shift the father's attention away from the problem. He wants to help shift the father's attention away from the fact that the disciples weren't able to deliver his son from this demon. And he wants to shift the father's attention to him and him alone. It's not a matter of my ability, Jesus essentially says. It's a matter of your ability to believe. If I can, of course I can, but all things are possible to him who believes. And in his honest desperation after having dealt with this situation for his, whole, his son's whole life, perhaps, the man cries out, Jesus, I believe, but I'm having a hard time believing. This has been the, intense, the most intense thing I've ever dealt with in my life. This, is, this has been uh, long. It's been pervasive. My son has been thrown into fire and it's been thrown into water. He's almost died several times in his life and nobody's been able to deliver my son. Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus responds to this man's honest expression of faith and does the very thing that he's been seeking for him to do. As I think about this passage and the years that I've spent just thinking about and meditating and sharing this with other people, I believe in this moment when the boy is seizing, Jesus in that moment asks the man how long this has been happening, as in to enter into a conversation with him in the most intense moment because Jesus knows I've got this. So the boy is seizing and he looks at his father, not 
at the point of when it's over, but while it's happening. And he says, how long has this been going on? And the man has got to be frantic. He's got to be upset. He's got to be about to lose his mind. Jesus, if you can do anything, do it now. And Jesus is having this conversation because Jesus wants the man to know the problem is not too big for me. I've got this. But what I need you to do is fix your eyes, as we just sang a little while ago, turn your eyes upon me. And even these these intense, adverse situations in your life, the things of this life, the things of this world, they will begin to grow strangely dim as you realize who it is that you're standing before and that they're no match for him. Jesus assures him that all things are possible for the one who believes, which is not because of their faith. It's not who they are and the fact that they believe that all things are possible, but it's because of where their faith is anchored. Again, he shifts the question from his ability because he's able to the boy's father's ability to believe. And helping the father's unbelief, Jesus just simply demonstrated with his words, demonstrated the power that his disciples failed to and exorcised the demon from the boy. Now, there was a a little bit of a display uh, of a power struggle here because the demon uh, began to to act more violently, react more violently than he had before to, to essentially show how strong or how powerful he was as if that hadn't all been, already been realized by everyone else. But Jesus, Jesus wasn't phased by this. He commanded, hey, you, you come out and not just come out, but don't ever go back in him again. And by the time the encounter was over, the boy had convulsed and was still and seemed to be lifeless. I wonder if the man thought, Jesus just killed my son. But Jesus in his love, in his grace, in his passion, and his compassion, he takes the boy by the hand, much like he did Jairus' daughter, and he raised him up. And the one who seemed to have been dead rose. Now the scene changes to a home. And as it does so, we find out that faith is fueled when it's steeped in prayer. Faith is fueled when it's steeped in prayer. So as the scene is over, the disciples are with Jesus, all 12 at this point. Three have been with him and they come back to the other nine. The other nine are stumped and confused and not doing what they're supposed to be able to do because they have misplaced confidence, trusting in themselves and not in Jesus. And Jesus takes care of the situation. The text goes on to say, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus, what's wrong with us? Why couldn't we do this? We've done this before. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus, once again, all throughout this passage is displaying love, he's displaying compassion, he's displaying patience, and he's patient again with the disciples. Why? Because he wants these guys to get it. They're it. He's investing in them, and he's going to hand them the keys to the kingdom. When he leaves, they're it. 
So he's patient with them. He's loving. And even though he's, he's experienced some level of disappointment because of the evidence of the unbelief in their heart, Jesus instructs them when they ask this question. And his response is simple. This kind, a spirit with such great power, a, a spirit entrenched for so long, can only be cast out or driven out by prayer. And this isn't just, Father, in Jesus' name, remove this spirit. Because still in, somewhere in there, we, we, we have a sense our confidence is in the words that we say. But this isn't that kind of prayer. This is a kind of prayer that, that presses into the one who's being looked to. It's a kind of prayer that puts full confidence in the one who's being sought. It's the kind of prayer that believes that there is one, that there is none greater, none stronger, none who is able to deliver, but the one that you're praying to. It's through that kind of prayer that this kind of spirit can be driven out. The kind of prayer where there is zero confidence in my ability to deliver or to rescue and full faith in Jesus' ability to deliver me and to make me an overcomer in him. When faith doesn't come easily, that's a time to press into the truth of God's word. That's a time to turn to God in prayer and to cry out much like the man did in this text. Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I believe that Jesus will do for you and I what he did for this man. He'll demonstrate his power, not only to deliver us, not only to solve the problem that we're bringing to him or coming to him about. He, he's not interested in that and that alone. But he demonstrates his power to show us that there is no one else more deserving of our love, of our affections, of our worship, because no one else can deliver us like he can. There is none other. I think the man left with his son that day, never again doubting or debating the ability of Jesus. And that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives. He wants to rid our hearts of unbelief, so much so that the power of Jesus is able to flow freely through us. As it is with disciples then, so it should be with us today, that as his followers, as Jesus' disciples, as his messengers, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as his ambassadors, we should minister with that same power and authority as Jesus. But in order to do that, we press into the reality of and remind ourselves of the reality of what Jesus says in John 15, where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When faith doesn't come easily. We press into the one whom apart from whom we can do nothing, and we find that faith in him makes all things possible. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word tonight, and I ask that you would cause our faith to increase, that Jesus, you would meet us at the place of our, of our honest unbelief. As many people are here in this room, 
There is many different situations that plague us, that perhaps possess us. And what we need in these moments is a fresh look at you, a more intent look at you. We need to fix our eyes upon you, Jesus, not to receive deliverance, not to have our problem solved, but because you and you alone are worthy. And we believe that you are able. So scripture tells us that you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what we ask or think or ask and imagine. And you do that by the power that's at work within us, that same power that raised you from the dead, Jesus. So we ask that you would cause our faith to increase. We might make much of you to the glory of God the Father. Amen.